0: Before we we get started and get digging on in, um, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and have your Bibles ready in in 1 Kings. And guess what? Um, I'm making progress from last week. Last week there was no slides. This week, this is the only slide. (laughs) All right? All right? Yeah, maybe the next time, maybe we'll even have one more after that. But um, uh, the good, the bad, and the so so. I wanted to steal the title from the Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. But um, I didn't want to make any references to the one queen who's mentioned out of these 40 kings. There's one queen who, I don't know if she was ugly or not, but she was really bad. So I just wanted to stay away from that altogether because there were some kings that were so-so. They started off good and then they kind of went not so good. Kind of like Solomon. Alright? So um, we're going to be looking in our in our passage uh, predominantly in, in 1 Kings. And um, but while you're turning there, I, I wanted to do a little house housekeeping for, for us because things have progressed pretty quickly with regards to uh, Stephen Graves Memorial. Um, just found out. Friday, and and it really wasn't confirmed until yesterday um, afternoon, um, that um, his uh, memorial service will be here this Tuesday in two days. It's going to be at 10 o'clock, and it's going to be right here, and it's uh, going to be, uh, based upon what Audrey desires, a very short service. Okay? Um, And uh, then from that, We'll probably be leaving here at about quarter to 11, and uh, a few of us will be heading on down to Miramar Cemetery down in San Diego, and that's where uh, Stephen will be buried. He was a veteran in the Air Force, and so um, that's what's going to be going on Tuesday. I just wanted to let you know about that. Um, We're going to try to get an email out uh, today just to kind of give you a little more details about that so you'll have something to refer to. But uh, this is all moved really quickly. And it was all predicated on the fact of when the cemetery was, uh, uh, had an opening to be able to uh, do the ceremony down there. So I'm sorry that it's like just coming on you. But wanted to try to let you know about that. With that, uh, I'd like to uh, um, look. Uh, last week we looked at the book of Second Samuel. And focused in on chapter 7, which uh, the verses 1 through 17, um, which uh, tried, I tried to unpack that passage referred to as the Davidic covenant. Um, David wanted to build God a house, and we saw that his house was a temple for God. And, and yet God said no, because he wanted to build David a house. And that house wasn't a structure, but it was a dynasty. And as we tried to unpack what that meant and, and how from David's line, the messianic king would come. At the beginning of the video, they, kept, they went right back and they referred to it. Here's David, here's the messianic king who's going to come, and it's going to be through David's lineage. And then after that you saw, but then all those who succeeded him kind of like, Bleh. That's Cooper Translation for really screwed up. And so um, we're going to dig into that today because we're going to look at not every single one of them, but we're going to try to do a few highlights of some things that, that I thought would be important for us to learn from, from this incredible book. I've got a friend who, who uh, just started the series, and they're going to be going through it for months just on the different kings. Well, we're doing the flyover. Remember, we're trying to help each of you somehow get some kind of grasp about all 66 books of the Bible. And we can't possibly go into all the detail that um, they deserve, but we're hoping that maybe it'll spark and inspire, you know, each of you to be able to do that on your own. We saw David's highs, and we saw his lows. The book ended with David having sinned uh, again by taking a census of the entire nation of Israel. And, and the Lord sent his judgment on the people, and because of that, he wiped out 70,000 people because of David's sin. Because David is the representative of God's people, and, and they bear the consequences of David's behavior, both good good and bad. So here we are in First and Second Kings. After centuries of, of sojourning and struggling and, and conquest, God's promises to Abraham appears to finally be tangible. David and Solomon unite the Israelites into a single kingdom. Remember, for the first seven and a half years of David's reign, he was just the king of the southern part of Judah. And then... For the last 33 years, he was the king over the combined. The northern Israel and the southern Judah were combined for all of Israel. And Solomon continued and, and picked up that mantle where his father left off. Known as 1st and 2nd Kings in our Bibles, right? Um, the, the book of Kings is originally a single book, similar really to 1st and 2nd Samuel when Stephen shared that with us uh, a few weeks ago. And it, 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 it recounts the rule of Israel's kings from David's son Solomon up until the time of Israel's exile, the final result of Israel's disobedience. Now, the books of First and Second Kings receive their names because uh, the document, uh, they document the reigns of 40 different monarchs of kingdoms of Israel and Judah following David. 40 different kings. Started roughly somewhere around 930, and, and then the Babylonian uh, uh, or the Sumerian uh, exile, and, and all of a sudden that ended about 722 or so. But the southern kingdom, Judah, still was, had kings until about 586 or so. And, and so the north and the south, they had all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems. Israel had 20 kings and Judah had 20 kings, including, as I told you, one female who usurped the throne. Her name was Athaliah. She's in 2 Kings chapter 11. Ruthless woman. But in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Kings were one book until the 16th century. The ancients regarded them as the continuation of that narrative begun in Samuel. Now, the Septuagint and all that is, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, uh, dates from about 250 B.C., so we're again not going to have time about who are the different authors. There's all kinds of different debates. Some people say Jeremiah. Some people say it was written by a, a, a group of people and, and they had combined that, you know, beca- covering all this span of time. And you know, it's 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 interesting reading and it's really cool, but we just don't have time to go there. The Septuagint translators, however, called these two books First and Second Kings. They called them Third and Fourth Kingdoms. Because uh, first uh, and second kingdoms were known as first and second Samuel. I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm just trying to kind of give you just a a brief capsule of the history. And then it wasn't until the Latin translation, which was Jerome's, which dates back to about 400 AD, and, and that's when it was changed from the name of kingdoms to kings. And that's how we've arrived with it in our English Bibles today. And if you've read through these two books, you'll find very similar descriptions of different kings. I was taken aback by it as I was rereading, and it was just like, wow. It normally starts out, if you've already read through it, because now our preaching schedule is a little behind our reading schedule, actually quite a bit behind, but but if you read through it, or if you haven't yet, I'll just give you an update. It normally starts out by telling the year that the king started his reign. And then it transitions within those first two verses to how long he was on the throne, uh, the names of his parents, some cases it was uh, his father, most of the time, but some cases it was his mother. In some cases it was both. And then there's a description of what they were remembered for. A description of what they were remembered for. Now, as we saw in the video, um, there were 40 kings, they were over for 20 in the northern kingdom of Israel, once it had split. Okay? Saul, then David, and Solomon, and then chapter 12 in 1 Kings is when we read about how they split after Solomon's death. A grab for power. Rehoboam and Jeroboam. There's a, and so, one was in the north, one was in the south. It was a civil war, is basically what it was, for a long period of time. And I couldn't help but think, wow, gee, that's exactly what God wanted. He wanted his people to be divided instead of to be united. Not at all. But he allowed it to happen. And so, as we look at this, I was reading the descriptions of the bad kings. And I'm not going to go through all 32 of them for you, because there were 32. But, just to give you an example, in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 3, this is Abijam. It says, And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Wow, Um, what a a horrible thing to be remembered for, isn't it? I just kind of think, and he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Later on in that chapter, verse 26, it talks about Nabad, or Nadab. It says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which made Israel to sin. All right, Nadab. Basha, in verse 34 of that same chapter 15, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Omri, in chapter 16, verse 25, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. Okay, all right. He's got his name. I, I'm better than all the rest of them, meaning I'm worse than all the rest of them before me to this point. Uh, Ahab. <laughs> Good old King Ahab. In chapter 16, in verse 30, it says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So his, his dad wasn't bad enough. Ahab is described as just being absolutely the worst. And then we find out stories in chapter 17 and 18, where then God's prophet, Elijah, comes and does battle against all of the false gods. Now, remember, this is something that just struck me so, like, ah, uh, These aren't the enemies of Israel. These are the people of God. The people of God who are fighting with each other, who have forgotten of who their leader was, who their true king was. And they are worshiping false gods and they are proliferating that. They are making it even better and better and better in a bad sense, of highlighting all these other gods. I mean, my heart breaks as I'm reading through these descriptions and, and reading through what these men, these leaders, were doing. And then the last, the last bad one that I had referenced was in First Kings chapter 22. Verses 52 and 53. It says this about Ahaziah. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, Ahab. And in the way of his mother, his mother was Jezebel. Now I have a confession to make and I know it's horrible and that's okay. You can judge me all you want. But um, there were times when my daughters were younger and if they were like in one of those moods, Um, uh, Men, you know what I'm talking about. Ladies are going, what kind of moods, Craig? Uh, they were just in one of those moods. And there would be times, again, I'm not proud of it, but I knew exactly what I was doing. I would just say, whoa, whoa, what's going on, Jezebel? And because my daughters knew the story, Rightfully so, they would call me out. I mean, the looks that they gave me. Daddy, did you just say what I think you said? And there's a part of me in my flesh that wanted to say, you better believe it. But the other part of me as a father and as someone who knew I'm molding my daughter's lives and spiritual lives, it was like, I did, and I'm sorry. I, 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 was, I was kidding. That's not really something to kid about. Because Jezebel was a horrible woman. She worshipped all of the false gods that she grew up with. And just like so many, turned the king's sights away from the one true God to start worshiping false gods. But it says in verse 52, And in the way of Jeroboam, who was the first one, the first king of that divided kingdom, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Verse 53, He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done man bad bad dudes but there's hope because there were eight good kings some would say there was four good kings and four kind of uh, others would say yeah no there's six good kings and two of them like they were pretty good but then they weren't too good but you know what we're not gonna uh, debate that so much i just wanted you to see here's the description of a good king. In 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 11, this is what is said of King Asa. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. I think you're going to see a familiar th- theme. Jehoshaphat, in 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 43, he walked in all the ways of Asa his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Now understand something, none of these kings were sinless, none of them were perfect, but they are remembered in the same way, I mean, King David. We've seen how King David was, his highs, his lows, but yet he still kept, every time he would mess up, he would still confess, and then he would be restored, and then he would confess, and then he would be restored. Whereas others, they'd never confessed. They were never restored. But these good kings recognized, okay, I know who God the Father is. Joash, who's also referred to as Jehoash, just a different spelling, he's the same guy. In 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 2, it says, And Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days. Doesn't mean he was perfect, but in the eyes of the Lord, he led to the very best of his ability, and he was leading the people toward the Lord, not away from him. Amaziah in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 3. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did in all things as Joash his father has done. But notice this, because this is the first place I just wanted to interject this. Verse 4. But the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Now, some people go, well, what's so wrong with that? Um, The high places, even if they were sacrificing to the true God of Israel? In Deuteronomy chapter 12, he had given explicit instructions. "Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. This is how you're supposed to do things. And here we are later on there's still these high places. So even if these kings were worshiping the one true God, they were doing it in the wrong way. But a lot of these kings, when, they, when it says, and they still allowed the high places, that means they didn't get rid of these new erected places of the false gods where they could be worshiped at. Okay, so you follow me there? It's, it's, it's kind of both and. And both of them were wrong. God wanted them eliminated. Azariah in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 3 says, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. You see, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Jotham in 2 Kings 15, verse 34. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Hezekiah. Mm, 2 Kings Chapter 18, verse 3. Love it. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. And then we get to Josiah. In chapter 22, verse 2. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. And he did not turn to the right or to the left. It meant he, he wasn't distracted. He, he, he wasn't sidetracked. He was... So what's, what's so important about that? Well, I, I think it shows me how easily um, these leaders lost their way. So it's very sobering, it's very humbling, it's very, um, I, I, I could say there's, a, there's an element of fear within me that thinks, wow, um, if these guys could go like that, i got to be on guard. And you know what? I hope I never lose that fear. Not fear of, oh, no, what's God going to do to me? The fear of, whoa, I, I want to, I, I, please, Lord, help me to walk in your ways. Help me to, to be an example as a pastor. It doesn't matter how big or small a church is, wh- whoever's a leader, whether it's the pastor, elders... Right? Whether it's somebody who's, who's leading within uh, doing the nursery ministry that extends love to those babies when they can't even comprehend different words, but they know love. So help each of them to be able to be servants and focused on, on our Heavenly Father. See, what's also another cool thing about all this is that Jesus came and he turned everything upside down. Why? Because he was a servant king. He wasn't a king. and said, hey, give me all this. Yeah, all that for me. Okay, great. He was right there and was a servant and modeled that for his disciples. And it had such an impact. They carried that on. and, And hopefully that's what we aspire to be, servants. But as we now transition throughout both books, uh, we're able to see two themes. Two themes that are really prevalent in here. And one is God's divine sovereignty. His divine sovereignty. In the midst of all of it, God is still the one who's sovereign, God is still the one who's in control. We might question, well, how is He in control when these guys all go off and do those things? In His sovereignty, He allows us, through the free will, to make even poor choices. And yet, he still redeems them, each and every one. Not only is this God's sovereignty, but it's also human responsibility. And so, um, these books show throughout the relationship of a sovereign God and and, God to a responsible or even an irresponsible people, right? Throughout these two books, God used the prophets we saw in, in our video to speak on God's behalf. When these kings were going off, it's like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Thus saith the Lord. And we are introduced to, to a number, I'll say a majority of our prophets That we see in scripture. They also acted as as those covenant watchdogs. Right? Not to to just be ready to pounce on, on anybody for doing something wrong. But to watch out on the kings. So that they're not leading their people in a wrong way. Because again we saw the people reap the consequences of their kings. When the kings are following the Lord. Wow there's blessing. And the, when the kings aren't, man, that's not blessing at all. And again, it culminated in both kingdoms, the North, Israel and the South Judah being exiled, conquered, their land taken because of the, the kings. They also spoke out against idolatry and injustice, and they challenged the kings and the people to repent. And go back to following what God's word said in the Torah. We can see great clashes between the kings, uh, Israel's many kings and prophets, especially with Elijah and Elisha. Man, those two dudes—they, I can't wait to see those guys in heaven. I mean, those guys had cojones. Sorry, they did for one prophet to stand up to the king and his horrible queen and 450 prophets of a false god and call all of them out before the people on Mount Carmel in chapter 18 of 1 Kings? Sometimes I just struggle talking to people one-on-one who have a different view or opinion. And we're forceful and, and loud. And, and I, I'm like, oh, I, I, I want to talk through there. I want to let you know about Jesus. And this guy, there's no holding back. And the same with Elisha. Incredible guys. And, and so much so that um, in the coming weeks, we're going to be jumping all into the prophets, the minor prophets, the the major prophets, and and you're going to be hearing about all of them and what their specific roles were in in God's plan of communicating with his people. In fact, for the next two weeks, starting next week, we're going to be jumping into the life of Isaiah and breaking up his book into two weeks because there's so much there that we just don't want you to miss out on. So, that's the flyover in First and Second Kings. Uh, but I'd like to look back at Israel's third king, Solomon, the son of David. And um, uh, Solomon's reign is divided into three parts. That first part uh, is, there's great promise. The beginning and successes. Wow, in the, in the first three chapters. In chapter 1, David charges Solomon to follow the commands of the Torah. He does that in both chapters. And then, uh, if you would, turn with me to chapter 3. Chapter 3. Because um, this, and you're familiar with it, I know you are, but still, we need to make sure that, that we're um, taking the time to at least dig, dig into things, even if they are familiar, because I believe God's word is living and active. It tells us that, and he's going to bring to light what he wants us to hear from him today. I'm starting in verse 5. Starting in verse 5 of 1 Kings chapter 3. And it it, it says, um, In Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, ask what you wish me to give you. Wow. How many of you wish you had a dream like that? Right? I I know I do. I had a dream last night that, um, (laughs) This sounds so morbid. That I was having a heart attack and fell over, and I woke up before I died. How do you like that? There's an insight to what was going on in my head, you know, uh, last night, having a dream like this. Hey Lord, me please, me next, me next. But I love that, and then it says in verse 6, Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him his great loving kindness, that you have given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Meaning, thanks, that's me, Father. Verse 7, now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. Your servant is in the midst uh, of your people, which you have chosen, a great people, who are too many to be numbered or counted. Now, hit this in verse 9. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. If you have a pen, man, you should circle that verse. You should underline it. You should do whatever it is. This says, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? And then in verse 10, and it says, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, I probably would have done that. Or have not asked for riches for yourself? Okay, I, I would have done that. Oh, or have asked? Uh, or have you asked for the life of your enemies? It depends on what day it is, right? He says, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Look at what God says in verse 12. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor. Wow. Solomon asks for a heart that listens to rule his people, to discern between good and evil. And God honors this request and rewards Solomon with wealth and honor. Incredible. Incredible. So you say, okay, big deal, Craig. Then we start to... Start to see how that wealth and that honor, and he he was a master builder, and and how all these things were happening up in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. It's like, oh, and then we start getting to chapter 9 and chapter 10. And then we really hit in chapter 11 because idolatry and rebellion, and then it leads to the fall of Babylon down the road. Turn with me to chapter 11, chapter 11, such a sad chapter, verse 1, now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, and look at this, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from after their gods. And then it says at the end of that verse in verse 2, Solomon held fast to these in love. Oh, man. And then... In verse 3, it says, He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Yo! I mean, on the one hand, I'm trying to think, if I'm, if I'm a lady, ladies in here, and, and, and I'm not a woman, but I'm trying with my male mind to kind of fathom, I don't think I'd want to be one of the 700 wives or princesses, and, and let alone, how about uh, the 300 concubines? So I'm one of a thousand women that this king shares. No, thank you. Maybe some of you are saying, hey, I, I'll try it. Yeah, I'll give it a shot, you know, but I'm just telling you, I'm trying to think And your mind's like, no, no. Now, I can tell you, I, I, I think I know a little bit of what the men are thinking. Some men are thinking, "Oh no! Are you kidding me? I I don't even know how to handle one wife. You got a thousand women? No thank you. Not all the money in the world. There's other guys that I wouldn't mind trying it out for a little bit. Yeah, maybe, maybe you know, a little bit. That's our flesh talking. It's like, hmm. And I get all the wealth? Oh, wow. Seems like a win-win. Now, wives, don't go poking your husbands and asking them later on, Is it, uh, was Craig speaking for you? Because if, if I'm sitting next to my wife, I'm like, oh, no, honey, not at all. Not at all. But let's just be honest and, and talk about some of these things, how our minds kind of go, wow, Crazy. And and then as we look at that, it says uh, Solomon accumulates all of these wives and and concubines and and political alliances. That's what they were for in those days. It was for political alliances. So if I marry your daughter, ooh, okay, I'm good on this border. And if I marry your daughter, oh, okay, I'm good on this border. And if I marry your daughter, I'm good on this border. And so that's why the kings would do that. It was political. But um, let's look at verse 9. It says, now, now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. And then dropping down into verse 10. It says, But he did not observe, this is talking about Solomon, what the Lord had commanded. And so here's, here's what happens. Uh, God allows Israel's armies to overtake their land. The unified kingdom of David is split into tribal states of Israelites. The ten tribes up north and the two tribes down south. Which are now picked off slowly over the next 250 years. All because of the divided kingdom. All because of Solomon thinking he was doing something strategic. It was not strategic at all. Because he turned away. From the Lord his God and all that the Lord had commanded him. So what can we learn from uh, Solomon and the rest of these kings? Uh, We need to stay close to the Lord. In both good times and in bad. You're like, okay, Craig, that's really simplistic. I know. But I want you to remember, the good kings were recognized as good because why? They did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. How about you and I? What if that standard is is on us? How would we be described as men and women, as sons and daughters of the messianic king? Solomon and the others were the recipients of God's wrath or his judgment. Why? Because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. Early Solomon, young Solomon, He wrote the book of Proverbs. He's the same guy who wrote Proverbs chapter three. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The same man who could write those words also in his later life wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes chapter one verse two says, everything is meaningless. Wow. Wow. Early in life started strong. End in life. Nope. No human trait, no matter how finely tuned, can function well apart from a relationship with God where that trait is fully submitted and committed. I read that from a commentator and I just went, wow, that's hitting me, God. No human trait, no matter how finely tuned, can function well apart from a relationship with God. It doesn't matter if the wisest man in the world has this wisdom. If he is not functioning in a strong relationship with God, it's not going to work. It's the same for you and I. However great our strengths, and God has given each and every one of us a strength. He's given each and every one of us a spiritual gift. He's given each and every one of us a talent. But when we rely on those rather than on God, men and women, we are sure to fall. Beginning our life well is only half of it. Only a deep and a close relationship and continuing personal relationship with Jesus Christ can offer fulfillment. Only through continuing commitment can God's purposes in our lives be achieved. Ecclesiastes and Proverbs are in f- effect uh, expressions of a philosophy of life, aren't they? Each reveals principles on which Solomon at different stages of his life felt people should live. How has your life How has my life shown a growing commitment to God rather than a Solomon-like decline? Now guess what? If there's nothing else, um, this is the one point I want to get you with. How do we stay close to the Lord? Um, You're going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't care. Read his word and act upon it. And I just want to focus on what does that action look like? Pray. So much so that I, I want to challenge each and every one of you. Every single person here. I don't know who is available. I don't know different schedules. It's not about trying to manipulate. It's not about trying to guilt. None of those things. But I want to challenge each and every one of you for our church to come on Thursday morning at 6:30. There's been a small band of men and women who've been praying for many years before I came here, and I hope for all the years that this church exists. And it doesn't matter if there's been uh, one or two of them, or if there's eight or 10 of them, they consistently just come and pray. Now, could they do it at home? Absolutely. But you know what, there's something about being unified and coming together to pray And so, that's my challenge. I know you have routines. Some of you have so much better routines, discipline-wise, than I I ever will. I'm just asking you to come this Thursday. It's not going to be structured. But come and pray. And then show a unity for our body. I'm not going to ask you to commit to that every single Thursday. I'm asking you for one Thursday. And if you don't have other conflicts where you already have to be out at work early, because I know a number of you do, or if you're going to be out of town, listen, I I get that. But for the rest of us, I'm going to ask that you come and pray. You pray silently. You can uh, pray uh, out loud. I want to ask you to come and pray. Our church needs it. I've had so many people, and I've been so blessed to say, man, we're praying for you, Pastor Craig. And I said, keep coming. Right? Don't stop just because you told me that. (laughs) Keep it coming. And I am so grateful because I believe that our church, at a time right now, it's never needed more prayer. And I'm excited about that. I think this is a time where our church can come together and be able to say, yes, we are seeking the Lord together. We're not silos, we're not individuals. I'm not praying for my own things. I'm praying for God. What do you want? No hidden agendas. You can pray and ask for God's forgiveness for whatever is is just keeping you from just feeling as if you are right there with God or whatever's keeping you from being able to be reconciled with somebody else come and just see god what do you have in store for our church i know so many of you are praying for our our next senior pastor and all of you have different ideas let's not come together to pray for what we want let's come together to pray for what god wants let's come together so that we can be united and say you know what i'm in this this church it's my family and i'm committed to it and i'm committed to seeking Lord, what you want for it. So that's my main point. Out of the entire book, it just brought me back to the fact of we've got to be drawing close to the Lord. And and so many of you are reading, going through the reading plan. So many of you have your own plan. That's awesome. Please continue that. But when we read, let's act. And I'm asking you for one act. To come this Thursday. I know it's simple. But I've been so challenged in these books. uh, I don't want to be recognized as one of those bad leaders. And I hope you don't either. I desire for myself and for each and every single one of us. To be recognized as men and women who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And I believe that prayer is the great place to start. So I'm going to pray right now. Father God, I um, am so humbled by your incredible love that you have for us. I am humbled by the fact that you still saw fit to fulfill your promises of your commitment and covenant to David to provide the messianic king. And that we have had the opportunity and have the opportunity each and every day to be able to just unite with Jesus. To experience salvation. To to enjoy restoration. Lord, I pray that as your sons and daughters, we never lose that passion. We never lose that the desire not to earn your favor, we can't, but to just follow Jesus? So Lord, would you, would you give us the strength and the discipline to act on what we learn? Not for knowledge, but for love of you and for others. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.